Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Life and Sport Podcast. And we are still on that grind of the 2024 Summer uh, uh, Summer Olympics series for the podcast. So we've currently had swimmers, we've had rowers, we've had uh, judo, we've had kayaking, you know, you name it, we're covering it. Uh, Whether it's an Olympian or a coach or somewhat, we're going to have them on the podcast before the 2024 Paris Olympics. This bloke is... um, you can say very special in the sense of I've not interviewed someone from this uh, sport discipline before ever, let alone uh, for a summer Olympic series. He was a race walker and his name is Dion. I probably butchered that Dion Russell. Thank you very much for joining me today. And how's your day been so far? No worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good day. Pretty good day here. And I'm, I'm based in Canberra. Um, yep. So nice, warm, warm summer weather finally, but uh, very, very unusually humid. At the yeah. moment, so, um... it's same with me like don't get me wrong warm great but this isn't this isn't because the light's bright it's it's because it's so sweaty the light is glistening off my bloody forehead yeah yeah we're used to dry heats here in summer but yeah. um it feels like we're up at, up north could be good oh. in 2032 but uh... yeah true it definitely feels like cans almost like 88 percent humidity it's it's gross literally sweating just sitting <laughs> Uh, Rightio. Well, we've got a a few topics to cover for this uh, podcast, obviously interviewing you about your sporting journey and also your transition into retirement and still being involved in sport. Obviously, the first question for every guest I have, regardless of the sport, is what's your earliest memory of the sport that you participated in, which was race walking? Yeah, it's uh, it's probably a common question I get. How did you get into race walking? Because it's something that um, people are familiar with. Or, or I think it's your first preference compared to, you know, football or basketball or something like that. But yep. um, I actually, I was a little ass um, child. A little ass, uh, yeah. Yeah, so back when I was probably about eight, nine years of age, uh, my, my father was involved in athletics and my sister as well. I'm one of three kids. So I used to get dragged down to the track on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Yep. And uh, I kind of had a choice. I could either just sit on the hill for a few hours and just watch everything and probably be, be bored. bored. <laughs> yeah. I put it down and kick it on the sidelines or I could actually have a go at a few events and I decided for the latter. So um, I, you know, did a bit of hurdling, a bit of middle distance running and, and my father was actually a race walker as well. And he said, oh, how about you come on down and give it a go? So that was my very first introduction to it. And oh, I think wow. I, in my very first race, my dad was actually a judge in the race and, and I actually got disqualified. So it wasn't the first <laughs> wasn't the best start for the uh for the event but um, it, it is a very technical that. sport isn't it like as in you've got to have one foot in contact with the ground at all times was that sort of the the part that got you disqualified yeah 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 that's that's what tripped me up the um there's two main rules you're right there's the contact with your feet on the ground and the other one's kind of a bent knee rule so as as, oh, as in leg, you can't have bent knees yeah as your legs going under your body in that perpendicular kind of position it needs to be a straight leg so um you, you can get done for a bent knee, which is kind of more like a running action than a, than a yeah. walking action. So they're, gotcha. they're the two, but contact was my nemesis on that day, yeah. Oh, wow. And obviously, Dad, you know, being a judge, you'd think, oh, Dad will get me that'll get me off you know no worries but no dad's a stickler for the rules which is great to see he didn't you know give you any shortcuts which is honestly awesome to hear you did just mention before though that you used to take your footy down that obviously means that you did follow footy growing up did you have a team i did yes i'm a mad Essendon supporter and i still am so, oh, okay uh, born and bred in Melbourne. Fan. <laughs> oh right oh well <laughs> anzac day hey could be a big one yeah, but um absolutely 
Yeah, no, I was born in, in Melbourne and lived there till about 17, 18 years of age. And yeah. my grandparents lived in Windy Hills. So it was a, a generational thing handed down through the family. And absolutely, I get my kids to follow them as well. Oh, do they have a different team at the moment or is it they're too young to have a team at the moment? Oh, no, they're, they're kind of passive bomber supporters, I guess. I think in Canberra, you kind of, we, we get the benefit of all the football codes here, yeah. and, and AFL. So Absolutely. We've got games, but, um, okay, have you gone to some Raiders games? Yeah, a few Raiders games um, in July here in Canberra. One day the uh, the field was completely covered in snow. You couldn't see the try line. But, um, yep. yeah, we try and get along and support the local teams. I think it's pretty important to do. And, um, Absolutely. Yeah, really keen for sports, even though I specialised in, in athletics a bit, bit older, um, a general interest in, in a lot of sport. That's awesome to hear. Um, very interesting to hear that you're an Essendon fan, but as you said, you grew up in Victoria, but so that checks out as to, even though you're living in Canberra, the Essendon sort of fandom. But obviously this is not about AFL. This is about race walking and your specific athletic career. Obviously we just covered the earliest memories of race walking. At what point, you know, from obviously your early days as a kid to, you know, little A's to, you know, maybe young adulthood, did you realise, you know what? I've got what it takes. I'm going to give the Olympic team, like, I'm going to give it a crack to try and make the team. Yeah, I was probably a bit of a late developer, to be honest. I um, I did a, a multiple of sports. I did swimming, um, basketball, played a bit of school hockey, as well as mm-hmm. athletics. So I'm a big believer in not specialising too early. I think it's good to have exposure to a whole range of different sports um, yep. and see what you might be good at and, and what you might be attracted to or, or gravitate towards. Um, and it wasn't probably until my latter high school years maybe okay. around year 10 probably, uh, when I made my first World Junior Championships. I wasn't really expecting to make it, make it, but I kind of seemed to improve and improve. And I was really only training three times a week with my dad was coaching me when I started off. Um, and I got closer to that qualifying time. And then all of a sudden I, I achieved the time. And that was probably the point where I went, oh, made an Australian national team. This is pretty good. You yeah. get the uniform and off you go with your first team. And that kind of planted the seed, I think, in World Juniors. And I was only 17 at that stage. So... Mm. I was fortunate enough to go to another World Juniors two years after that um, when I was 19, and, and that really probably set me on, off on my path. So probably late high school years, and then I had to really make a choice. I kind of got yeah. to that point where... Do you I got that crossroads doing... of, do I keep doing all the sports or do I do one? <laughs> That's right, yeah, and, and I'm an asthmatic, so um, swimming was really good for my asthma. Um, yep. When I was training about four times a week swimming, I, I gave up the basketball um, I think individual sports probably suited me a bit better, yeah. more my style, um, and I chose to go to athletics. And then when I was 18, I hopped in the car and I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship at the Australian Institute of Sport and yeah. um, moved up there And when I was 18 and, and kind of took it a bit more seriously then and started training almost semi-professionally, I guess. You don't really make a lot of money in, in this chosen sport, but um, the AIS certainly was, was a big helper for me to kind of fast track and open up those opportunities that's really awesome to hear and obviously uh, we've interviewed quite a few olympians on the podcast so far and a lot of them have you could say if anything all different sports and whatnot one common one thing in common and that would be how much of a jump it is in um skill set and whatnot going from you know the the junior champs sort of thing to the olympic team to like making the olympic team and if you don't mind me asking did you find that a struggle to get from, you know, the the national junior team through to the Olympic team? Was it a testing period for you or was it you found out what you needed to do in order to, you know, get there and you just made it happen as, as you know, as much as you could sort of thing? 
Yeah, I think I had a pretty good transition, to be honest, from junior to seniors. As I was still a junior, I had a few camps at the AIS in Canberra where I'd just come up for, you know, two or three weeks. And back then we had a really good race walking squad. We had people like Kerry Saxby and Nick Ahern, um, who were already at that senior kind of Olympic level, had won medals at the international stage. Um, so I got to spend a couple of weeks with them and that probably opened my eyes as to what it would be required if you wanted to go on and try and make senior teams and and train at that level. So I had a bit of an idea. And okay. I think that move that move to Canberra put me into that full-time training environment. And I learned so much about recovery and training volume and nutrition and, and just making the right choices to allow you to do the workload and the training that you, you had to do to to I guess continue to, to improve and and raise your lift your standard of, of performance. So I had some really good senior athletes around me that kind of helped me um, and really good, kind of almost like mentors for me, giving mm. me lots of advice and lots of tips and they were very disciplined and it was a really good environment for, for me as a junior trying to make that next step because I went from five, 10,000 metre events up mm -hmm. to a 20 kilometre event. So it's doubled the distance. Yeah, that's, uh, so it is a yeah, big that's, that's no easy feat for sure. Um, and if you don't mind me asking, so we just recently had Margot Foster on and she said something that was so um you could say profound to an extent obviously because a lot of journalists or media and whatnot um even athletes themselves talk about you know the sacrifice that's involved with sport but the way she coined it was it's not a sacrifice if you love it it's a choice sort of thing you know it's a, a sacrifice is i was made to do this i was made to do that or i had to do this no no she wanted to do this she wanted to do that to be the best and so my question for you is at any point during your sporting career maybe towards the end of um you know to, towards retirement but at any point during your you know developmental days and even your time in the olympics was it did it seem more so like a choice or like a sacrifice if you don't mind me asking oh no i, I fully agree with those kind of comments it, it really was a choice um i didn't feel like i was missing out on on anything else um you know, you, you have early nights and yeah. quite disciplined with your diet and things like that. Um, but but it's all for that end goal sort of thing, isn't it? Well, that's right. At the end of the day, I could say, well, I've, I've made two Olympic teams. I've got Australian uniforms. Um, I've got some really good memories. I've got some great lifetime friendships from those Olympic teams and we still keep in contact today. But it's just that sense of achievement of I set myself some goals um, and I worked hard towards them and, and achieve those goals. So that was the real satisfying uh, I guess, intrinsic motivation that I had. Um, so I, I really didn't find it a, a situation of, of sacrifice, you know, you know, make the most of your opportunities. Is, it was my kind of mantra and, and I've been given a really good opportunity here and let's just see how far I can go and, and enjoy the journey and the experience along the way. And, you know, I can reflect on it now going, that was a really good time and I'm really happy with the, the choices that I made. Absolutely. And obviously, this wouldn't be an Olympic series podcast if we didn't talk about the Olympics that you uh, competed at. Obviously your first one was 1996 in Atlanta over in the U S uh, first question obviously is what was it like, you know, finally making the Olympic team and going over with, you know, to represent Australia in an Olympics. It was kind of surreal to be honest. I was only yeah. what, 21 back then. So I think there was about 74 in the race, if I can recall correctly. I think I was the second or the third youngest in, in the field. So oh, wow. I was a little bit surprised to actually make that team. Um, I didn't yep. qualify until May in 1996. and I That's went away cutting it close, for sure. 
It was, yeah, yeah. And there was a few of us that um, had already, some had already qualified. We went to Europe yep. as we did every year and we got in a few races. And I went to a town called Eisenhuttenstadt in, in Germany and yep. did a 20K then. Um, and I wasn't really planning on doing the qualifying time. I was in pretty good shape and pretty good form. It was really you were just going time. there to, to do your best, but not, yeah. you know, you, you went in there with the goal to make the team. No, no, that's right. And it's probably a case of, you know, just almost that trust the process type yeah. slogan that you hear, um, you know, in sports teams and things like that. Don't focus on the outcome, just in the here and the now and the moment and just enjoy it. And I felt good. And when I crossed the line, I looked at my watch and I went, jeepers, I've um, I've just gone under the qualifier here. I didn't <laughs> anticipate that. And my, my teammates were so happy for me and we went and celebrated that night. And and that's what got me into the Atlanta team. So it was somewhat of a, of a bit of a surprise, but very um, – almost surreal kind of feeling, yeah. you know, you're in, you're in that team and you've got people like Kathy Freeman and Tim Forsyth and the team with you who are just... Absolute superstars. Yeah, stars that you look up to and you go, oh, man, I'm in the team with them here and, and the opening ceremony, the Olympic Village is like a suburb in itself. And really obviously they've got hairdressers and shops and everything and it don't, yeah, don't they? Yeah, Tim Bowling, Ali in there and, um, you know, they had all the, the Macca's restaurants and all that kind of stuff in there. So you didn't have to leave the village for, for two weeks. Movie cinemas um, and, and wow. the like. So kind of overwhelming a bit for a, for a younger athlete. Um, and there is a bit of a theory that usually in your second Olympics, you do a little bit better, particularly for mm. track and field. And I can see why now. I think that first Olympics, you soak up the atmosphere and the environment and everything going on around you. Um and then the, the second, second one, you're more zoned in sort of thing. You kind of know what to expect and, and you can kind of start to, I guess, mentally prepare yourself for what it's like and focus well, on. Well, I was going to say the 2000 Olympics after that was in the home country, Australia, which would have been a lot easier on travel, of course, for yourself because, you know, you would have been based in, at the AIS just up to Sydney, you know, that sort of stuff would have been absolutely wonderful. Uh, first of all, pairing them, obviously going to America, and, you know, the jet lag and all that sort of stuff to having it in your home country, representing your home country as well. What was that like? And how did they compare in the sense of, you know, having to travel and almost relatively not having to travel sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, very big difference. Um, when we were traveling to Atlanta, we were in Sydney ready to leave in the team plane and, and the plane was delayed out of Sydney. So we, we knew that we were missing our connection in LA before we'd even taken off from Australia. So we had to stay yeah. overnight. Half the team was in Dallas, the other half in Chicago, and then we met up oh. in North Carolina. So it was a 40-plus-hour trip um, compared to Sydney, you know, a couple of <laughs> hours down like the highway. Which is like an hour or two, yeah. Yeah, which was fantastic. So um, very, very different. And, of course, you've got, you've got your family here and you've just got surrounds that you're used to um, yep. and you know what works for you and what doesn't. And you can stick to your routine a lot better with a home Olympics. So for Canberra, I did the um, – for Sydney, sorry, I did the 20K and the 50K. They were a week apart. Yeah. So we went up a couple of days before the 20K and did that event. And then we hopped in the Tarago that night, the whole squad, and we yeah. all drove back to Canberra that night and we could use the recovery centre at the AIS. We're that would have been Atlanta. great rather than being stuck in the village yeah. in Atlanta sort of thing. That's right, yeah, with strangers and all other teams wanting to use the communal facilities like the gym and the recovery and the pool and the dining hall and everything that's, that's the sort of thing that that people may not realize is the genuine advantage that a home nation does have such as you know you took advantage of going back down to the ais for that week sort of thing yeah that's right we could we could use the recovery pools that we had been using for every day we, we knew our routine back in your own bed good night's sleep in your own room 
you're not sharing with other people. You don't have the weird noises in athletes' villages of, you know, African countries singing and dancing at midnight because that's what they do with their drums and instruments and all that kind of stuff. Um, you can really, I think it really just helps you stay focused, stay yeah. grounded and not be distracted by a lot of the, I guess, the the atmosphere that's going yeah. on around you whilst it is good to be immersed in all that and it is a, a unique experience to be in. Sometimes it can be a little bit distracting too, particularly if you're not kind of used to it um, and you're relatively new to, to that environment. So very big difference. Um, and, of course, the family on the sidelines. Mm. Um, it's great. I have my family positioned around the course cheering for me and friends and relatives and everything. So you felt like you really had hometown support um, and a bit of an advantage that, um, you know, a lot of people cheering for you, whereas overseas, you might have a coach or you might have a teammate on the course with you or handing you your drinks and things like that. But um, a lot of, you know, strangers around the course and speaking different languages and shouting out to the to the competitors. But in Australia, I certainly felt like we had a, a big home cheese. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's awesome. And as you just mentioned, like just earlier that, um, you know, it takes, especially for track and field sort of um, athletes, you know, it takes the second Olympics to really, you know, do well sort of thing did you find yourself um you know that you personally did better whether it was a pb whether it was a medal etc at sydney olympics compared to uh, the 96 atlanta yeah i certainly felt a bit more experienced um and a bit more wiser in terms of approaching the race and, and execution on the day um very very trying conditions in sydney because it was still 30 degrees in september oh, which was a little bit yeah. hotter than what we had expected um although a lot of the Eastern Europeans suffered a lot more than us because I don't think they, they would have. They wouldn't have been well. ready. <laughs> no, and, and some of them left their their journey to Australia a bit late, so they were struggling um, to climatize. Yeah, in jet lag too. Yeah. Well, um, so I think I approached the the races a bit better. I was a bit better prepared, and I think I handled the distances and, and the races a bit better um, as well. So I, I certainly walked away from Sydney going, "No, I'm, I'm pretty happy with with those performances." It's kind of where I thought I would be, and um, yeah, yeah, no regrets. That's awesome to hear. Obviously, um, not this year's Olympics being in Paris. The next two Olympics are literally America and Australia again. You've got Los Angeles and then you've got Brisbane. Um, obviously, you've been in the sense of you've gone to America and then had one in Australia as an Olympic athlete yourself. How do you think, obviously, since the technological advances since those previous Olympics, do you think the Australian sides of athletes, track and field, et cetera, may fare? for, you know, the next two uh, Los Angeles and Brisbane games? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that they do pick a really big team for Los Angeles for 2028 because mm. I would suspect a lot of the um, the team members for Brisbane will be in the LA team. Um, I that's agree, certainly yeah. what they did. They stacked the Atlanta team. The Australian team was very big for 1996, and, and part of that was um, a longer-term view for four years after that for the home game. So yep. get as many people in that team get them as much exposure as you can and you'll have an experience. They've got a second Olympics to go to. Yeah. 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 Much more prepared um, team, both mentally you know, and physically as well for, for the home Olympics. So hopefully they can replicate that as well because there are those, those similarities. And even though, you know, a lot of time has lapsed since Sydney, I think there's still a lot of lessons learned um, around travel and preparing and recovery and things Especially like that. Especially for other nations coming to Australia as well. I, I suspect that a lot of teams will want to come out just like they did before Sydney. They'll want to come out. They'll want to practice their acclimatisation, their jet lag, their travel strategies. They'll want to come out and see where they can hold holding camps 
prior to Brisbane, where they're going to base themselves. Luckily, Australia is a huge it. country. They can do that. That's right. That's right. So there'll be a lot wanting to go to the East Coast, I suspect. I was going to say, send them to Cooper Beatty. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, have, they'll have a shock there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but and there'll be a lot of test events for the venues as well. So a lot of the organisers here in, in Australia will want to test out some of the facilities and some of the technology, the timing systems. Um, and how it's all going to work. So international teams will want, to, will want a piece of that as well, just to get themselves as familiar as possible because you still talk to Americans and Europeans now and they can't believe the amount of time that takes to get out to Australia. And, oh, yeah. And uh, it blows their mind a bit, to be honest. So I think they're going to try and, and practice that in the lead-up to Brisbane and, and it will come around before we know it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, look, look at it this way. It's already Paris Olympics. I, I'm still remembering 2016. I still remember 2008 Beijing Olympics, and we're already talking about 2024. It's, you know, it's gone like that, and so therefore, you know, Brisbane Olympics will be here before we know it. And first of all, I can't wait for that because you know we had we've had Melbourne, we've had Sydney, and now we've got Brisbane. Does that mean that Perth needs to have one in like 2040 or 2050? Do you reckon? Oh, possibly. Why not? The more we can right. have the. The more we can have, the better, because we kind of rise as a home home country, and it's it's such a buzz and such a great experience for the athletes. And I was fortunate enough that the timing was right for me for for my career that Sydney Home Olympics um, featured when I was um, kind of in the peak of my career, which was really good. Um, and now here's an opportunity for the next generation to, to compete at home as well. And, and it doesn't come around that often. So No, it's been literally 32 years by the time we, we get it in Brisbane since our last one that we hosted sort of thing. That's right. That's right. So you just got to make the most of it. And and um, and I'm sure there's there's lots of strains that, that aren't actually competing at the moment. You know, they could be 14 or 16 now that by the time 2032 comes around, they'll be right in that zone. Um, yeah. that, that window of opportunity and and um, it'd be a fantastic life experience for them to have. Oh, absolutely. It'll be unreal. Um, obviously, this is not necessarily a podcast about the 2032 Olympics, but obviously very keen for that. Um, but obviously, sports always comes to an end for people when it comes to competing at some point. And my first question for you about retirement is, what was the transition like for you in the first 18 months post-retirement? you know, retirement? Yeah, it was quite quite weird. I probably um, retired a little bit earlier than than a lot of people that, that do race walking. A lot of them can um, keep going, you know, till their thirties. Or there's even a Spanish guy who was in his forties who competed oh, at the wow. Champs last year. So they they can keep going for a while. But I decided to go um, and retire up after Sydney. Um, I'd already made up my mind before the Sydney Games that that's what I wanted to do. And there was a few other things I wanted to do. I got married earlier in the Sydney two thousand um, year. Um, so I had some other plans as well outside of sport. But when I reflected back, when I first moved to the AIS as a, what, a 17, 18-year-old, um, I got some advice on that first week, which I think was some of the best advice I ever got. And that was um, go and get yourself a part-time job um, mm-hmm. to combine that with, with your training. It's very tempting just to train full-time and go, I don't have time to do anything else. Um, but for your own, I guess, well-being, your own mental health, and for your long-term kind of prospects, it's really important to do something else besides just train, 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 um, particularly if you get an injury or you go through a really rough patch with your training and competitions, you need something else to kind of help lift you up in those kind of times. So I got myself a, um, a part-time job as a tour guide at the AIS. So I've got some public yep. speaking skills and things like that. Um, and you got a little bit of pocket money along the way. 
um, and I studied as well. So I did a, a Bachelor of Applied Science um, in Human Biology. So I just made sure I had that ticking over in the background, um, knowing that I'll probably need that one day when I did decide to, to retire and move on into other things. So I kind of had a few things ticking over in combination with training and, and competing, which I'm very um, thankful that I did now. Um, and very thankful for the advice I got from some of those more senior athletes who said, don't think about, don't forget about other aspects of your life, mm. um, which helped with that transition. But because athletes that, these days definitely do struggle with the with the first 18 months because all they've known is from basically 13, 14 years old, literal constant training and competing and training and competing and then competing and training. The only time they get off is Christmas sort of thing. And they don't have a, a part-time job. Maybe they have, maybe they are studying, but that still doesn't prepare them because they don't have that work life for lack of a better term balance. That's right. And and the one thing that was really weird for me was waking up in the morning. I'd generally be up at, you know, five thirty six, and you're off training, um, waking up and not going off to train. It was the change in routine that really got okay. me. Um, I thought I'd usually be doing this now. All of a sudden, I've got two or three spare hours in the morning that I would be out right. training. What am I going to do? do? <laughs> yeah, what am I going to do? So, um, you know, breakfast took a little bit longer in the mornings or you watch a bit of TV while you're getting ready for work or something like that. But I found I tried to – I still kept fit. I didn't stop exercising and I still ride and, and run and, and do a little bit of swimming, a bit of gym now. So I, I still did some – fitness i couldn't go cold turkey i just couldn't do it and yeah. and stop completely but i just wasn't doing it to the same degree so i might well, I mean, have even for... football players do that they'll retire and then they'll go into like a local league sort of yeah. thing for quite a few years and still play because they just you know they can't fully transition their body out of the sport at that time sort of thing that's right i might just go for a light run and you might listen to a podcast or some music while you're out running or just go for a swim or i ride into work these days so i'm still doing some exercise so i'm still getting my kind of my hit of exercise and those endorphins in the morning um it's just not to the extreme degree that that i was doing but it, yeah. it was a big adjustment in in routine that's fair and that's really interesting because yeah a lot of people that i've interviewed olympians and and non-olympians have said you know um, they they didn't miss the early mornings. They didn't miss the pre-seasons sort of thing, but they did miss the structure. So which, you know, they did miss the routine sort of thing, which is very, very interesting to hear that even, you know, an individual athlete such as yourself struggle with that as well. Um, obviously, retirement means a lot of different avenues are potentially opened up, you know. And so what was obviously not the routine in particular, but what area of you know, work or or whatnot did you go into or decide to go into after retiring from sport? Your feet deserve a break, guys. And what better way to treat them right than with a new pair of thongs? And guys, Toey Thongs has you covered. No word of an actual lie. These thongs are the comfiest pairs I've ever, ever owned. Straight out of the package, soft as heck. You know, they come in single plugger and double, double plugger. I'm currently rocking the single pluggers. Um, yeah, guys, for just $30 per solo pair. And the more you buy, the cheaper they get. And who doesn't love cheap thongs, you know? They also offer a monthly subscription to receive a pair every month for six months. So if you're a thong fiend or just need a new pair, be sure to head to toeythongs.com. Use our code LIFEINSPORT15 for 15% off. At yeah, cheap. obviously, I've, I've got an interest in sport. So I kind of got into the sports administration and management. Um, side of things so I did some volunteer roles with some sporting organizations um, I volunteered with a couple of local sporting clubs up with basketball and swimming uh, but the big one for me I actually stayed 
I had about a four-year um, absence, I guess, from athletics. I went off and did a few other things and just had a bit of a break. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was asked to, to come back in as a uh, national selector um, oh, wow. for, for athletics. So I um, agreed to, to do that. And so I was part of a selection panel selecting national representative teams from World Juniors, cross-country, um, race-walking teams, ironically enough, um, yep. and Olympic and, and Paralympic teams as well. So that was that was um, a lot of fun to be involved in, um, and I just wanted to give back to the sport as well. Um, I'd benefited a lot from it, and and I wanted uh, future generations too as well. Um, I knew what it was like to be an athlete on the selection side of things, um, and the um, I guess the experience of waiting to be find out if you're in a team or not, and and um, how that all works as well. You know, a lot of athletes give up a lot of um, personal things to try to make an Olympic team. So. Um, yes, yeah, so I did selection for about 10, 10 12 years, um, which was pretty exciting. So I did uh, four or five Olympic teams. Would have done a few Commonwealth Games as well. The Commonwealth team, yeah, the first one I did was the 2006 Melbourne Commonwealth Games team. It was yep. the first one I was involved in in the selection of. Um, so that was that was pretty good. Um, unfortunately, we don't have another Melbourne Commonwealth Games. That would have been good to go for yeah. a circle in 2026, but uh, that's another story. Um, so I did selection. I was on a couple of anti-doping committees as well um oh, wow. again, the sport of athletics um i've represented at a few kind of um, international forums anti-doping symposiums and things like that so still involved in sport um when i worked at the ais i was there for about 20 years so i had a sports science degree so that kind of helped me connect a bit with the sports scientists that were there um, so that was kind of useful as well but I, I focused more on the management side of side of things yeah, nice. That's actually really interesting because it's such a journey for, you know, as you said, you were part of, you know, anti-doping, you were part of selections and everything. So you've literally been in it as an athlete and, you know, you basically would know 90% of the ins and outs of, of you know, individual sports, which is incredible. We've got some quick fire questions and then we've got two final questions, a bit of introspective type ones to finish it up. First quick fire question is Apple or Android? Apple, easy. Absolutely. Everyone has said Apple. I don't think I've actually had anyone say Android yet. Um, what's your favourite movie of all time? Uh, I really like The Sixth Sense. I still talk it's... about that, and I want my kids to go and see it. But, yeah, no. Great really film. Yeah. And yeah, honestly, get them to watch it before Bruce Willis passes away, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of walk out of that movie and you go, oh, that was interesting. And you, yeah. It's fun that you talk about it. And if you've got to talk about it after it, you know, it's a good movie. Oh, especially given we're still talking about it you know, decades after it was released, which is incredible. Um, what? How do you like your steak? Uh, medium. Yeah, fair. Yeah. Uh, what's your drink of choice, whether that's alcohol, fizzy water, whatever it is? Um, I don't mind dry ginger ale for a soft drink. Mm-hmm. Um, bit of an unusual taste, I guess. Um, and I do like a, a red wine as well. Yeah, nice. Uh, like a Shiraz sort of red wine? Yeah, yeah, Shiraz. Something with a bit of bite to it is good. Yeah, very nice. I actually just recently had a really nice Shiraz um, from down-ish your way. Um, the, bear with me, I'm trying to remember the town. The Gundagai Shiraz. Oh, is, yeah. yeah, it's very, very nice. Um, That's why I don't even... when you retire, you can, um, you can start to enjoy a bit more wine. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, final question for the quick fire is songs or crocs? Uh, crocs. 
Okay, you're the first one that said Crocs. That's very interesting. They're coming um, back in, aren't they? That's what my kids are telling me. They all got Crocs for Christmas, so apparently they're back in. Well, yeah, they are. They've even got little gibbet things that you can put in the holes yeah, and stuff. You have to get them, yep. Yep. Okay, the final two questions I've got for you. What's three life lessons you know now that you would tell to your younger self? Three life lessons. Um, enjoy the journey, not the destination. Okay, so so trust the process, basically. Yep. Very yep. nice. Um, hard work does pay off. So it oh, might seem, might seem hard at the time, but it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile. Just be patient. Um, that might have been my third one, actually, patience. Um, I think that's, that's very important. Whatever you do, whether it's training, work, family life, I think patience is, is a bit of a key. Absolutely. And obviously, my final question is the same question for every guest. And it's what's next for Dion Russell? Yeah, what's next? That's important. I've, I've just started a, a new role in, in federal government. Um, I'm, I'm in my first first year there. There's a couple Is that of to do with sport. Uh, yes, yeah, to do with sport, kind of sport policy type role, okay. um, which which is quite interesting and a different perspective. But I think I'm I'm got an opportunity to kind of provide a, some experience um, into that into that role. I think there's a couple of opportunities with a few new sports that I haven't had as much involvement with that, that might be around the corner, um, which I'm kind of contemplating at the moment. So, mm-hmm. again, it's that kind of theory of giving back a bit to the sport. Um, my kids are kind of a little bit older now, so I've probably got a bit more spare time to to con- contribute. Um, so I've, I've been a, a basketball coach before at junior level and some team manager roles. Um, so exploring some of those opportunities too and um, a bit of travel. We're really keen nice. to, um, we're thinking about going to Japan next year. So Ooh, very nice. for, for leisure, not for training and competition. Yeah. yeah, no, that's fair enough. And honestly, that's, yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to.